This is Teaching Otherwise, a podcast exploring teaching and psychology. Welcome to episode six. In this episode, we investigate the possible benefits of teaching in a way that emphasizes the social and historical context of the content in our courses. So the three of us have been exploring some ideas around um, teaching psychology with a greater emphasis on the context in which knowledge was produced in the field. It has been an idea that we've been exploring for a while, and we thought we might just have a conversation here today, kind of examining this idea and some of the thoughts we've had that are you know, still in development, you know, why this feels like it might be uh, a fruitful, of, of a valuable place to, um, to explore for our teaching. So maybe we can just open that up. What, what do you guys think? What, what are some of the things that have grabbed hold of you to lead you to think about sharing more of the who, the when, the where, the historical context in your teaching? I, I think for me, like, you know, I've been working for a number of years trying to, you know, do scholarship around the history and the theory of methods uh, in science generally, but in psychology. And in that process, you know, I've been reading a lot of, uh, you know, science studies, anthropology, sociology, that kind of stuff. And then also just like history of psychology and, and getting a better sense of, you know, what's really going on in labs, you know, in psychology, you know, what's at stake, um, what kinds of practices are really involved, what are the politics, and, you know, probably not surprising that the more you read about that, the more you see that that the process of producing psychological knowledge is this very culturally, morally, politically complicated process, right? It's not people in labs developing theories, testing theories, publishing reports. It's way more complicated than that. There's a lot more po politics and values that go into the whole process. For me personally, that's kind of done a lot to help me understand what psychology is about, you know, what psychologists are really doing when they do research and, you know, what that research is really for, like what, what were the purposes of it and so on. Anyway, so, so that process has been illuminating for me. And so thinking, about teaching my students research methods and and not just that but just topics in psychology i've asked myself this has illuminated it for me could it could this kind of context illuminate the discipline and the practice of research for my students yeah i, I think for me um it's been similar themes that have taken me in that direction as far as um research methods I, I started using replication in my um, senior research course for, for my students who were conducting studies. And this was, you know, right as the replication crisis was kind of reaching its zenith. And so we spent time exploring the replication crisis. And this is something that hadn't really been tidied up for the textbooks. And so we were, we were having to look at just the sort of thing you were talking about, Josh, um, you know, what people were arguing about. We were seeing all of the messiness as psychology is confronting this so-called crisis. And 
it was rather surprising to me how engaged my students became with this um, unsettled and messy version of research rather than the, the pretty tidy version that they usually get in a research methods textbook. I, I'd say probably at least half of my students are pretty intimidated by research methods. They, they don't identify with the role of being a researcher and they come pretty reluctantly to that. But seeing how, how, how fully engaged they would become with these themes and how they saw more of a personal stake in doing replications made me really wonder what favors I was doing them when I'd give them the sanitized version of any textbook versus this messy approach. And it had me wondering, you know, the replication crisis is just one piece of context for the field. Like this exists for every bit of knowledge that I'm trying to teach my students about, you know, could there be more points of entry like that? What about you, Joe? I feel like I came across this a little more accidentally because I don't, first of all, when we started talking about this, especially leading up to Donna's podcast, when we recorded her podcast, I didn't feel like there was a lot that I could resonate with um, because I don't teach methods. But then, of course, I realized that this is something that I do in my psychology of marriage class. And, and I don't know that I ever did it, it intentionally. I, we just we started reading this book the first time I ever taught the course. And I thought, well, here I'll teach them that, that marriage hasn't always been romanticized the way it is. And we're going to get that from Stephanie Kuhn's book. And, and then I noticed as we talked more about how history informs the discipline itself, that one of the things I wasn't really tapping into for the students was the connection between the way that the social sciences have sort of built their conceptualization of marriage on top of a cultural history that wasn't transparent to the students. And what I mean by that is we developed as a culture into this sort of, uh, we, we see marriage individualistically. The, the scientists are only in, in interested in the way that we understand marriage and not the way in which it's been understood historically. Then they tend to conceptualize, they, they've built their conceptualization of marriage on top of that, that the cultural norm. And this, this never seemed like a big deal to me, really. I, I, I've known this really since graduate school, but I've never taught it to my students yet. Yet now I'm realizing that my students are so caught up in what science is telling them makes a good marriage that, that they have no sense that, that what science is telling them, they're telling them because of, of how we have historically created marriage and not because of anything objective that marriage might be. And so I'm really realizing now that I've got this sort of entry point into talking about science and method in a marriage class in a way that helps the students understand a little bit better how the, the methods of psychology are bound up in the humans that are actually performing the science themselves. There's something about the, the way that unraveling what the given, like the things that we just sort of take for granted and showing them as like a, pro, a historical cultural process, right? That they, 
what we take for granted wasn't always taken for granted. And there are reasons that our way of seeing things developed, right? That they happened in a, in a context and that served particular purposes and so on. Like there's something about doing that. You know, we, we overuse this notion of critical thinking, I think when we talk about teaching, but you know, I've never seen anything that better inspires critical thinking than that process of really looking at how a thing came to be historically, contextually, politically. So, you know, when we do that with our, with any particular part of the canon in psychology, I think that process does more to make clear, even, even the standard canonized version becomes much more clear when you can understand where it came from and that it's, that it's provincial, you know, it's situated. And, and, and particularly if you have any interest in kind of taking a critical or alternative view, then that process is is incredibly valuable. Yeah. I, I think that historical point of entry it was a big one here. I know for me, Josh, you invited me to um, co-author uh, um, an entry for an encyclopedia um, where we were writing about the history of the um, major theories in clinical psychology. It shouldn't have been so surprising to me, but it really was how much messier the, the different theories and theoreticians that the lines between them were so much blurrier as we were looking at them in the historical context than any abnormal psych book I had ever read. And the priorities that they had, the ways they were caring about them seemed to make so much more sense to me than they ever had before once we got into the historical record. And I don't think that what we're talking about is necessarily historical, but there's something about coming at it through the lens of history that really seems to open up that situatedness, that um, provincial quality that you're talking about better than anything else that I've found. Yeah, I remember being kind of shocked by how literally everyone was a psychoanalyst first. You know, yeah. Like the cognitivists, the humanists, who, the, the behaviorists. behaviorists, they were all psychoanalysts before. Even in what they developed, it... In, in the ways they were articulating it, it wasn't anywhere near as distant from psychoanalysis as the version that I would see in the textbooks would, would make it out to be. It is a dilemma, I think, in terms of the, the time that you have available. Right? We, yeah. you know, we wrote a book chapter about that, right? That I think that there is a lot of value in exposing students to the context of the concepts that they are just sort of taught to take for granted. Um, But that takes time. And you also need time to teach them a whole like set of vocabularies and practices that they're gonna be expected to know and understand in in the next class they take. And so that's the dilemma. You know, so you have this task that you have to socialize students to a particular way of thinking, even if you don't necessarily like or agree with that way of thinking, but it's still part of your job. Then you have this other part of your job that is like contextualizing the messiness and showing them the history of those ideas so that they can think critically about them. How do you balance those in terms of student time, instructional time? That's what I kind of like about Brady's example is in contextualizing research the way he's done. He's he's serving both of those purposes, not just contextualizing, but also giving them the, the vocabulary they need. Yeah, I, I feel like we end up walking a, a middle ground compromise that never gets quite as robustly critical as we sometimes get 
in theoretical psychology and critical psych but it's also not the memorize the key terms and answer multiple choice questions about them approach of kind of mastering the canon, so to speak. Um, yeah, the, the middle line, for, for me, the place where I found the middle line to walk is in, in with my master's students is in emphasizing the, the moral and ethical aspects of research in class. Like I've spent way more time on that than your average research methods class would because it does this, serves a similar function to what you're talking about with replication stuff that it's something that engages with research in its own kind of lexicon its own terminology and it doesn't bring like a heavy uh, critical language and, and make students learn that it just uh, engages with the discipline in terms of like you know what are your responsibilities to your participants to the field and how do your design choices reflect those responsibilities and so on. And so when I, when I engage with them at that level, we can do a lot of that critical thinking, including, you know, we in, include a lot of that stuff about replication as well. That, that allows us to engage critically in a way that's, that still is using the language of, of research that they will, you know, be required to understand when they go into to their future doctoral education. Yeah, I, I, think, I think those having those underlying questions of what is good and what is my responsibility to the good, they may not even recognize it always as moral and ethical, but it really does seem to open up a lot of the things that we're talking about and engage and animate the students better than anything that I've found. Yeah, and it's also a great avenue for the historical, to bring in historical questions, right? Because to answer a question like that, you absolutely have to have some historical context like to understand why psychologists thought doing research in a certain way made sense in the first place what purposes that was serving and also just i always in that class teach my students a kind of a section on the harms that psychologists have been party to across our history just just as a way of sensitizing them it's not all just like you know a human good all the time you know psychologists have stuff to answer for and we need to be careful about that too as you were talking about um bringing in the moral one of the things i haven't really done very explicitly in my marriage class is framed it in terms of what makes a good marriage and i don't think i mean that necessarily in a in a moral sense except that social scientists have defined good, the good in marriage as individualistic. And historically, it's been defined vastly different at different times and in different cultures. I'm just realizing right now that when I teach that class again, this gives me a different entry point with the students to talk about the history. What's sort of interesting about it is the students can actually see how the definition of what is good has changed over the history of marriage and that's that's really important but i think that's even more important for psychology globally i'm just thinking josh about the section you do on the the harm that that um, psychologists have done and there there has to be one or two of those psychologists who thought that they were doing good or right? all of them yeah or all well, of them. <laughs> well well and i i think i think what happens with with this like, I, I think it, it hits on an ontological level as well, because as, as you talk about what marriage is or what psychology as 
so uh, a wanting to be benevolent institution is, and you discover, oh, I don't quite know what that is, as you uh, confront that uncertainty, there's also this question of what could it be, what should it be, um, and, and having all of that in the face of uncertainty, I think is so compelling, but also so much more honest than giving set definitions, giving bounded universal explanations the way that the sanitized version so often does. That seems to be the beating heart of where learning gets exciting and where discovery happens. Yeah, and it demands, it demands a kind of humility of our students and of ourselves, I think, in confronting any of these subjects. It just makes me think over and over, what do I think is good right now? That in a hundred years, people will think, will look back and say, what was Austinson thinking? You know, not, I'm, I'm not saying anybody's going to be talking about me in a hundred years, but you know what I mean? Yeah, I think there's no question that the, this kind of critical view is more faithful representation of a discipline. Like there's no question that get, getting ourselves and our students to think um, carefully about the history and the context, the politics, the values that lie behind all of the things that we take for granted, the things that we assume as just sort of like ontic facts about human nature or whatever, that that is, is more intellectually honest and rigorous I think that the question that I find myself asking is how useful is it pedagogically um, or how much of that is useful pedagogically for various you know, instructional purposes? This is where I, I have a, an unsupported, at least at this point, unsupported conviction that it's, that it's useful and that it's more useful than practice as usual that like if you can get to know what a big personality bf skinner was and put him in context you're going to understand his behaviorism so much better than if you just go through the principles of operant conditioning you know and and that they're having a story to connect that to uh, just just in terms of like hanging on to the facts that that other version is trying to do i think you're going to have those better too well, and that right there, I think, helps students to just to not put themselves in the place of B.F. Skinner, but put themselves in the role of, of being a scholar or a scientist or an academic, because you don't have to be, I mean, you can be a big personality, I suppose, but you just have to be a human being, because that's all they've been from the very beginning as human beings. And there's nothing magic about what they've said, except how it connects to their humanity. And, and I, I think pedagogically, this is like the only way to do it because I just think you're gonna make better scientists in the long run. Yeah, I think that's been very easy for me to see in, in like my history of psychology classes. The way I taught history of psychology, I think I probably mentioned this before is that, that it's really shifted over time. You know, I first taught it the way it was taught to me, which was sort of like, you know, let's start with Aristotle or no, that's too, that's too recent, let's start with you know, Heraclitus or whatever, you know. And it was really like an intellectual history, a history of ideas. And that has shifted over time to where I teach history that, you know, does not start with the Greeks. It really starts with where psychology really began to be a discipline in the 19th century. And it doesn't 
focus primarily on ideas. I, I teach very few ideas in my history of psychology class now, and I mostly teach about who these people were and also the institutional contexts in which they lived, you know, like you can't understand Galton if you don't understand eugenics, you know, you can't understand testing in psychology or statistics if you don't understand eugenics, right? Um, this is something I think that we, that Donna, you know, did a great job of clarifying in that earlier podcast, you know, and I think that's true of ev everything that I teach my students. The more that I could set it into a context that made sense of why people were doing these things, like what, what political purposes, what values were they were driving them, you know, to understand that psychology really was an expression of the interests of those who paid for it. Like those kinds of concepts really made psychology clear for me and for my students in a way that the, the sort of great man intellectual history of psychology absolutely didn't. Do you think, Josh, that that helps the students um, frame better their own situatedness between institutions? I think for my students in particular, because so many of my students are, you know, first generation college students, you know, we're, you know, like 60% Hispanic. Um, as I shifted the way I teach my class, I focus a lot more on stuff like liberation psychology or, you know, people from marginalized groups who were resisting a particular way of approaching psychology, look, looking at that conflict between psychology as understood by the majority kind of white male, you know, sort of weird psychologist and, and looking at how those who had been marginalized resisted that in various ways. I think for them, they could just see themselves in psychology in a way that they never could without that way of, of telling the story. When we talk about um, Galton seemed to have not been very um, reflective about the damage that eugenics could do. If you were teaching Galton, knowing what this is going to look like a hundred years from now, how might you teach the history of psychology to help him be more aware of what his relationship is to the institution of which he's a part, or maybe maybe even in addition to that, what his responsibility is within the context of the institution that he's a part of. Does that make sense? Oh, yeah, I think that's a really, really crucial question. Uh, really tough to answer because, because I think with the view of history, we can see the ways that he maybe was blind to his embeddedness in a particular culture. This tracks with what we were talking about earlier, you know, like, you know, he, he had black servants that there's that there is um, evidence that he was quite abusive to like when he was on his, some of his travels in other parts of the world, you know? And also of course he was part of this moneyed privileged class. So there's like this whole like bubble of privilege that surrounded him personally. So, so he's so at such a far remove from the consequences of eugenics for the, the, these marginalized and oppressed groups like, I mean, it m might not have even been visible to him at a distance. I think it's clear when you read not just his writings, I don't want to pile on Galton, I mean, he represented his class, time, and gender pretty well. When you look at how all of them wrote about eugenics, they saw themselves and in fact were considered by everyone to be political progressives, that eugenics was an agenda of the progressivists. And they saw what they were doing as like this yes, avant-garde and yes, you know, like controversial, but, but still like essentially a human good, right? They were changing society, making society 
better reflect the, the best elements of human nature. Like they were really changing the world in positive ways in their own minds, right? So I think your question is crucial and but also so challenging. How do we see through the walls, the insulation that keeps us from seeing the kinds of things that they couldn't see? Because we have the same, we're living in the same kinds of cocoons. We just can't see them very well because we don't have hindsight. I don't know. I, I think that, that at least one thing that is active in a present-minded context is the sense that these things aren't settled completely yet in ways that the textbook version can give the illusion of. For my abnormal psychology class, I use Raskin's textbook, which is actually pretty great for showing some of this messiness uh, in terms of having perspectives that are truly contrasting and in competition with one another. And so he, he opens up the textbook with this discussion of, you know, our ignorance, what we don't know in the field, and the way that there's widespread disagreement. And so when I opened this semester with um, my class, it was pre-inauguration, post-storming of the Capitol, and the analogy that I used for them that I think really made sense to them, I told them, you know, when, when you ask about a fact in abnormal psychology, it's kind of like if we asked someone today in the United States, who is the president? You know, there's an answer that we could give you, but there's actually a whole lot of caveats and nuance for what that means, just in terms of the transition, the turmoil, the different perspectives you're going to get based on people's politics. And even where I think in their particular politics, they were probably pretty entrenched and probably holding some views wherever they are that might be embarrassing with the remove of history. At the very least, they were able to recognize that there's something afoot in terms of what we're calling knowledge. There, there's a conversation at play rather than just a set of facts. And I, I think that kind of perspective, I, you know, I do think that it's obviously possible, but I think ultimately the, the kind of perspective that allows us to, to in some measure escape the, our, our own kind of context and our own various kinds of privilege that make it so that we can't see other people's perspectives. I think ultimately it's only possible when you have you know, Helen Longino talks about this thing called equality of intellectual authority. And I think that's a good concept for describing what's required. Like she's talking specifically about science and that the, the only way to kind of have a real critical discourse in science is, is if you have political disciplinary structures that make it so that the widest possible range of qualified contributors have equal standing to challenge the assumptions of the status quo. And I think that's that's right. You know, I think when we we only start to see the blindnesses, well, so talking specifically about science, we only start to see them when other people start getting in, you know, access to science. When you start to see women doing science, that's when we start to really see all the androcentric kind of gendered biases in science. And you know, women scientists uncovered a great many of those and probably still are doing so. It's only when people of color get access to science that we start to see the, the racist biases, right? You know, it's sounding sort of like affirmative action, I guess, a little bit, but 
I, I think that there is no substitute for actual equality, right? Like that, that just like thinking real hard isn't going to do the job. Like trying, if, if a bunch of people with privilege of various kinds really try to be aware of their privilege, I don't think that that's going to accomplish much. But if they, you know, are part of advocacy that creates more quality, that equality is what will lead to real reflexivity and real challenging of those privileges. So I've got a question about this then, because we've been talking about, you know, more generally how teaching in context, particularly the historical, personal, you know, we've used the label provincial context of knowledge production, how that seems to get kind of a truer, more human account of what's happening and that it might be engaging, it might be valuable to students. Um, but, but here I think we're highlighting um, some of the issues of, um, I, I don't know if we want a better term, justice, social justice that we find ourselves grappling with today. Uh, Josh, how much do you see that as a natural result of these general approaches to contextuality that we're talking about, as opposed to this particular lens of our cultural moment as we, as, as we grapple with some of our past failings and try to set them right in the ways they're looking to us now? Yeah, I mean, I think that is a, uh, an interesting question. I'm not sure I have a coherent answer for it. I mean, because it, you know, it does seem very clear that not just this moment in particular, like this last year, but, you know, um, postmodernism, I guess you could say, and, yeah. you know, since, since the middle 20th century, I guess, um, you know, there's been this kind of critical view um, that we have to increasingly take into account when we think about knowledge. And that ins I think inspires kind of the, some of that more social justice equity kind of look at institutions, including science. And I don't, I don't know to what degree that is sort of a, a, a natural outgrowth of just, you know, thinking critically and contextually and to what degree it's just sort of a product of this particular historical moment. I'm not sure. I, I would like to think that they are natural allies, that they, they travel together. Yeah, well, and I, I, I guess I'm not ready to assume that teaching contextually naturally produces that sort of awareness, but it does seem to lend itself to that. If nothing else, it's, it's making me that much more sensitized to the fact that it's not just the context of knowledge production, but also the context of instruction and learning that is going into um, this encounter that we have with our students that are, you know, our hour, our 90 minutes in the classroom together is likewise weighing into that conversation with our particular social, political, historical context. Well, I think that and it, it kind of brings us back to where Joe started us, you know, we're, we can think of ourselves all as future Galtons and not, I mean, just in the sense that we are all intellectuals, us and our students in, in you know, working in this kind of community is context of ideas and all of us are probably working from any number of, not probably, certainly working from any number of local perspectives that make us, you know, not quite as sensitive to or blind to other perspectives. And how do we go about 
teaching our students, yes, and also, you know, reflecting on our own work in a way that helps us not, you know, um, in a hundred years be seen as contributing to injustice and harm. You know, it makes me think of, you know, Longino's kind of bounding value of qualified. It, it suggests to me that, you know, you know, maybe some of these values that, um, set the boundaries for us to be able to engage here, that humility seems to emerge in what we're talking about, you know, that if we're going to recognize our situatedness, there, there's a kind of humility that we are called to engage in and to acknowledge if we don't have some kind of access to something approaching a view from nowhere, a kind of authority that transcends those provincial qualities. And that in itself, I think, provides a really interesting challenge to the historical account of our discipline. Humility isn't what has gotten people into the textbooks, right? <laughs> and and th that in itself just fascinates me. I mean, that's part of what I want my students to see and how some of these people make their names by being loud, by being assertive, by making everything about what they're studying and what they care about. And that, um, that that might be why this is a bolded term in their textbook, because there is this person with this ego as much as it was because they got it right. Like, that's a story that I want my students to see. For me, it also puts a different, um, it sheds a different light on the way the academy is set up, where your teaching should be informed by scholarship that to be able to balance your engagement with other scholars at the institution in your, your service roles, to engage with scholars within your discipline or your subdiscipline outside, uh, outside of your institution can really, it seems like that can really inform the teaching that you do in the, it really ought to inform the teaching that you do in, in the classroom by keeping you humble and helping to frame even your own ideas that you try to bring into the classroom within this, mix of all these different scholars and even different disciplines. I find that in different contexts, this, this task is, is easier or harder. Um, some contexts, you know, like with my doctoral students, it's much easier for me to be more aware of my various kinds of privilege and the various assumptions that I make that might be patterning in my work because I feel like they have just enough standing to be able to challenge me without being in danger themselves, you know, but then also en enough kind of like uniqueness and perspective that I don't share that they can, you know, instruct me. I feel like every time I'm talking to my doctoral students, I'm like, okay, yeah, I just learned a new thing. I, I just learned a new way that I wasn't paying attention, you know, to my privilege or, or just to, to other people's needs or suffering or limitations. But then other contexts, you know, like kind of more traditional undergraduate education where the students are, have less opportunities to challenge me. Like, at least that's how they see it. I try to create um, a, a culture where they can challenge me, but the reality is that the power differential is so big that they just, so I don't know, I guess maybe what I'm saying is that the more I'm in a situation where the people around me have standing to challenge me, the, the better I am at, at thinking contextually, being being humble about my own positionality, seeing more clearly how I fit inside of the, the socio-political context in which I'm working. 
And that, that ought to then be reflected in your undergraduate classrooms where the power differential is so vast. And it also has got me thinking too, Josh, about these interdisciplinary courses that you teach and, and how you've said before that you have learned more about teaching from teaching with instructors from other disciplines um, than, I mean, fill in the blank, right? And, and it seems like that would be a really important reason to bring another voice into the classroom um, to what a, a voice that isn't, that isn't your own and, and probably diverges from your own in very important ways and in ways that you're not even paying attention to until you get in the classroom. That seems like that could be a really useful way of, of um, contextualizing what you're teaching. Yeah, and in fact, some of the times I've learned the most of when I was co-teaching with some of my graduate students. <laughs> I did that twice with, with people who were currently in my graduate program and we co-taught. Yeah, that was, those are two of the experiences I learned the most from because that put us really in a, in a very equal, still, there's still, you know, the residues of power. I don't, I don't want to play that down, you know. But inside the classroom, there was definitely a, a, a very equal kind of relationship. So there were all kinds of moments, constant moments of me having to think about my own positionality because somebody in there was challenging. I hadn't realized until we we're having this conversation how much I gain from serving on the faculty senate, for example. We don't have conversations about psychology and we don't have conversations about pedagogy, but I meet my colleagues from different disciplines. And as, I, as I've done that and seen what, what drives them, and I've, I've sometimes had to dig pretty deep um, to find out some of the things that drive them. For example, Brady, I was telling you about this proposal that I'm trying to move through the Senate. Now I'm not on Senate, but I'm trying to move this through on behalf of our department. And I'm having to, because it deals with general education, have conversations with disciplines all over campus. And this is a pretty innocuous sort of political thing, right? It doesn't really have to do with what happens in my classroom, except that when I've gone to biology and to chemistry and they've given me their feedback, which I like 100% disagree with, um, I'm having to rethink like what a bachelor of science means, what general education ought to mean. And it's causing me to reflect on the assumptions that I've sort of come into my general education classrooms with and, and whether I shouldn't change those and whether, whether those changes or whether, whether those, those assumptions haven't, um, I don't want to say done damage, but, but haven't given my students a false sense of security in the knowledge I sort of tried to hand to them, you know mm -hmm. what I'm saying? And so it's like this, this weird thing that we're asked to do is faculty Senate, which is really just about administering the university and, and curriculum and stuff. But it just, it's, it's striking me right now that like everything I do at university touches on my pedagogy in ways that I haven't even been able to acknowledge until now. And that seems really significant. Well, no, when you, as you're describing that, that really helps me because I think, and maybe this is just a synonym for context, but it seems like one of the things that we've been touching on is just um, really drawing out the situatedness of knowledge as we are um, considering our teaching. And 
I, I think the conversation has forced us to consider our own situatedness as teachers, not only the, the so-called content, you know, but, but asking who are the people that are involved? What are, what are the values, the politics, the economics that, um, that form the perspective that these questions and answers were coming from and the ways that they speak to our current situation? that uh, for, for me, I, just that notion of situatedness, I think feels like something that can be a good, that, that can help me when I'm planning a lesson for what, what are some of the things that I might look for as I teach about this particular thing. Yeah, one of the things that I think that this is making a more you know, clear for me as we talk is that maybe the notion of context can't be easily separated from community like that the when we're talking about context we often do it in a pretty abstracted way you know it's sort of like here's this thing that happened and let's let's give the context for it but i think it may be the case that the community of actual people either in the the moment where you're teaching, so that might include you and your colleagues and your students and your institution, but also the community of people in the, if we're talking about some historical moment, that community also, like th those actual people and their relationships and us and the people with whom we're having, you know, this conversation, our relationships, that's the, the actual home for this context that we're talking about, right? It's, it's about those real relationships with real people primarily rather than about an analysis of like social political forces or whatever, right? Like those can't be easily separated in that whatever it is we're talking about, it's at least as much about those, that community of relationships as it is about some analytic tool for thinking about context. I had a, a developmental psychology class yesterday and um, I, I have been teaching this class for eight years and I have never done this before, but we're on Zoom and there are about 40 students. And, and I just, I thought, well, let's try and have a conversation. And I, can I get them, you know, it's difficult to get them to unmute and, and participate. But what I had never done before is I had never asked them um, how parenting, how they feel like parenting had affected them. And that's such an easy question to ask in a developmental psychology class. It's also an easy question to evoke things that are real boundary crossers, which is probably why I've never asked it before. But it was really great because the students, and they weren't telling just horrible stories about things that their parents had done and, and made them neurotic or whatever, but they were just telling stories. And man, there were, I mean, I had 10 or 12 students, you know, at various different times telling these stories about their life. And, and I'm sitting there thinking, I've always hated teaching this class. And I think I've hated teaching this class because I never, I never taught it to students. I just kind of taught it. And I just had a, it was just a great experience. Something that I, I feel like is gonna change the way I, I think of that course. And, and easy too. I mean, the easiest thing in the world because parenting, developmental psychology and people who like to talk about the way they were raised, which is everybody. Thanks for joining us. We hope to catch you again soon on another episode of Teaching Otherwise.